this is your first time here, I'm so glad. I see a couple of new faces. I'm just gonna stay back here. I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, this, this is a church where I have found just such joy and fulfillment, where I've found friends, family, where I have found, I found the Lord, and I hope that you can do the same. But today is it's a continuation of almost like an in-house conversation. And it, it's really relevant to you. I, I think it's really significant. It's not just a church conversation, it's a personal conversation. But for us, we're introducing a new core value. We, we've had four values, and our direction team has prayed and discerned that we needed to clarify and make explicit a, a fifth core value, and it's this value, rhythm of life. Rhythm of life. I introduced it last week, and we said there's three pieces to this rhythm of life. One of those pieces is a Christ-centered calendar. A second piece is a life-giving limit. And then the third is what we call the transforming graces. It's where the rhythm of life takes shape in, in our groups and in how we just live discipleship day to day. That's what we're going to do this month in the series. So today it's Christ-centered calendars. And there's nothing more important to me in terms of what sets my schedule than my calendar. The, the calendar is one of the most powerful tools for focus. If you want to do something, it's got to show up on the calendar. Another way of saying this is that our calendars are king. Our calendars are king. Now you may think, well, my calendar doesn't tell me what to do. It's like, well, you have given your calendar permission to tell you what to do and when to do it. It may be delegated authority, but still, it, the calendar is king. The calendar moves us. It shapes us. It helps us focus. Our calendars are our commitments. You don't, you don't do anything unless it shows up in your calendar. And you may think, well, I don't ever update my calendar. My wife and I have this chalkboard calendar in one of our rooms. And used to, we would constantly update that with chalk. But what would happen is that you'd have to erase like three months ago sometimes because we'd forget. But just because you don't write it down doesn't mean you're not living by your calendar. Our calendar is our lived commitments. It's our values put into time and space. I think the calendar is the most powerful tool for our focus. Our calendars, our calendars are king. They focus our attention. They, they shape our values. Another way of saying this is that our calendars are the liturgy of our lives. Our calendars are the liturgies of our lives. And liturgy is a church word, right? And you probably grew up in a church that never used the word liturgy. That, that's me. In, in my home church, we didn't have liturgy, at least no one called it that, but I'll say this, every Sunday was very predictable. And in fact, if there was even a surprise baptism, we all knew the drill. We knew the liturgy. We even knew what song you would sing afterwards. If you were at camp, you knew what that liturgy looked like. We didn't use the language of liturgy, but we had liturgy. Later on in my life, I worshiped at a church where one of the elders would know by the minute where we were supposed to be in our service in order to get out on time. And so he could try to rush things along because he knew precisely. Now, at that church, you never would have heard the language of liturgy. Does that mean they didn't have liturgy? No, of course they had liturgy. Every church has liturgy. By liturgy, I mostly just mean your, your rhythm, your, your ritual. Normally, it's your religious ritual. It's the thing you do repeatedly. That's, that's liturgy. 
Liturgy often has a lot of music and colors. Liturgy is about story. Liturgy is about tradition. It's about doing over and over and over. But liturgy is more than doing because what we do does something to us. And so liturgy isn't just about focus, it's about formation. The goal of Christian liturgy is to be formed into the image of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says that we are being transformed into his likeness. The goal of our habits, of our rhythms, of our rituals, even our traditions, the goal at their best is to be formed into Christ. But here's the thing about liturgy. Is that churches aren't the only things that have liturgies. James K. Smith, he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And he says, if you just look around everywhere, there are secular liturgies. Now, they're not religious, right? But it doesn't mean they're not repeated rituals and traditions that are full of music and story and nostalgia. And all of these liturgies of our lives are held together by one powerful tool. The calendar. Our calendars hold together all of our traditions and rhythms and the things that we do and the things that we celebrate, and the stories that we tell and the order that we do it in. Everything is held together by, by our calendar. I have this question though. Where's the king in our calendar? If our calendars are king, if they tell us what to do and when to do it, where is the king? Where's the king in our calendar? You see, every life has a liturgy, but not every liturgy is aimed at the same thing. One author put it like this, human beings are creatures profoundly and fundamentally shaped by stories. And our conviction is that each of our lives will always be following someone's calendar and story. It's just a question of whose story it is and what kind of narrative it's telling. These cultural stories form us to desire certain things and to have a certain vision of what human flourishing looks like. Our stories, our liturgies tell us what to live for. And it's not that our liturgies or our calendars are inherently evil. It's that our liturgies and our calendars are inherently powerful. James K. E. Smith, one more time. He says, Christian discipleship that's going to be intentional and formative needs to be attentive to all the rival formations that we are immersed in. So let me ask you this question. Well, I don't have a question. Let me ask you this question without it being on the screen. What is already on your calendar two years from now? You may be thinking, I never plan that far ahead. I don't even know what I'm gonna be doing two weeks from now. That's, that's me. I, Kelsey and I have a trip that is sort of planned for August. That's a couple of weeks from now, and we have nothing booked. But at the same time, I can probably tell you pretty much, at least generally, what your week to week is gonna look like two years from now. It's actually pretty easy. Your week to week, because your, your job says you're gonna work five days that week, Monday to Friday for most of us, and if you happen to be a nurse, it may shift around, so you, you don't know, but most of us know what we're gonna be doing two years from now. We're either gonna be working or we're going to, on the weekend, we're gonna have time off. But it, it's actually more than that because the biggest dates in the calendar two years from now are also already set. Things like your birthday. Things like your kid's birthday. 
or your parents' anniversary or your anniversary, they're already set two years from now. You don't get to choose them. You might as well write them down because they're in the calendar. It's not just big life moments. Actually, so much of our calendars are already filled in. Your, your family trips are going to fit in with the rhythm of spring break or summer break or fall break if you have children or if you're a student if, or if you're at U of M, maybe grad school, you just kind of just keep working. You never get a break. But two years from now, you already know the rhythms that are going to be happening. You already know what tax day is. If you're in business or in finance or if you're helping people with tax returns, you know when the quarterly reports are due. You know when the fiscal year ends. You, you're fully aware of all of this. You see, our, our work is giving us a calendar. Our schools are giving us a calendar. And of course, our government gives us a calendar. On two years from now, you know what you're going to be doing in January. You're going to be celebrating New Year's and then President's Day and MLK. You know you're going to need a date for Valentine's Day. And then you've got that spring break coming up. And then you've got tax day coming up. And then you've got Memorial Day. You've got Juneteenth. And do you see what I mean? Our, our calendars are actually quite full before we ever even think about it. Our, they're the liturgies of our lives in all of these seasons. If you just think of like the holiday season that starts around Halloween or Thanksgiving, that season is already set two years from now, just as it is 20 years from now. In, in 50 years, when you're kind of at the end of your life looking back, you will still follow that same calendar with its music. And I bet we're still listening to those 1950s Christmas songs, and we're still looking at those claymation things because it's a, it's a liturgy with music and colors and stories and nostalgia that has a formation effect on us. So I want to make three observations about our, our calendars. And the first one is that our calendars are inherited, not selected. Our calendars are inherited, not selected. David Foster Wallace, he gave this famous commencement address at Kenyon College, and he says there's two fish swimming by and they see this older fish. And the older fish says, I like, morning, fellas, how's the water? And they just move on, and they say, what the heck is water? He didn't say that. I saw some kids in the room, I did What the heck is water? And his commencement address is called, this is water. Our calendar is one of those things where it's just, it's just there. It's invisible, and we didn't, we didn't actually choose it. It's just there, and it's all around us, and we've never thought of it. You ever thought about why we celebrate New Year's Day on New Year's Day? No, you haven't. <laughs> if you're Chinese, you'd have a totally different New Year's Day. If you were Jewish, you would celebrate Rosh Hashanah at a different time of the year. But we celebrate this time of the year. Why? Because we're Americans. We're not Chinese. Because we're, um, we're, we're Americans. We're not, we're not this culture, that culture, or that culture. We're, we're inheriting a, a calendar without even choosing it. And at some point, we have to open our eyes to what James K. A. Smith says we are immersed in. This is water. Look around. There's this powerful tool that's forming our, our liturgies of our lives, and we're not even aware of it. And the less we're aware of its formative impact, the greater its impact actually is. And so he says to be immersed in these secular liturgies is to be habituated. That is, it just becomes routine. It just becomes normal. To become habituated, to long for what they promise. You see, they fill our loves and they fill our identities. And you may think, well, what difference does it make? Aren't all calendars the same? No, no, they're not. Because 
Some calendars actually point to Christ, and some calendars are just there from culture. The second observation is that we inherit these calendars, and the, the calendars are cultural, not Christian. They're cultural, not Christian. They're, they're cultural in the sense, as one author put it, in America, for instance, we have a regular national liturgical calendar of holy days, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, Election Days, etc. These days are meant to tell a story to the collective citizens about the identity, history, values, and goals of the United States. And it's not just an America problem, right? Every country has its own calendar, and they're giving its cultural values. The values of a culture are shared in its calendar. So what are our values? One of our core values in our calendar is nationalism. You see it from President's Day to MLK to Memorial Day or Veterans Day or Fourth of July. We celebrate the cost of freedom. We tell those stories over and over, year after year. We tell it in the form of soldiers who have fallen, and we tell it in the form of leaders who have fallen, like MLK and others. These are the ones who had to sacrifice in order for us to have our freedom. That's the story of our culture. Of course, it's not just nationalism, it's also consumerism. If you just think of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is like our origin story as a people in the United States. And some people don't love that origin story. A lot of our stories celebrate power, and now there's a movement to try to celebrate the victims of the stories. Thanksgiving's one of those. But even those who celebrate Thanksgiving still have a hard time getting away from Black Friday. Because consumerism, but you really see the cultural, not Christian calendar in the Christian holy days themselves. For instance, when was the last time you were moved to worship on St. Valentine's Day? Right? Did you know that St. Valentine was this amazing guy, Valentini, and there may have been a few of them. One time, Valentine was arrested by like a local leader, a judge and he was gonna to be tortured and executed. But while he was in prison, he prayed for his judge's daughter and she was actually healed. And so instead of torturing and punishing him, he went to go talk to him and Valentine evangelized his judge who would have murdered him. And he said, you have to repent, put away your idols and you have to be baptized. You know what that man did? He repented and he was baptized and he released Valentine. It didn't matter because it wasn't that long before Emperor Claudius arrested Valentine for some of the same stuff. Except this time, whenever he evangelized the emperor, he was tortured. And the night before he was beheaded, he wrote a letter to the former judge's daughter and he signed it, Your Valentine. So, of course, a culture would remember that with Cupid candy <laughs> and flowers and everyone trying their best to have sex that night. Like, there's nothing that honors the legacy of evangelism to the point of death like that. Or think about St. Patrick's Day, right? We celebrate St. Patrick's Day. It's like, well, I need to wear green, otherwise I'm gonna get pinched. And then at the end of the day, I'm probably gonna go drinking. That's kind of the cultural, which of course honors the legacy of St. Patrick. St. Patrick, I don't know if you know this, he was actually enslaved by a tribe of Druids these like witch kind of pagan people. He was the Druid chief slave and he escaped only to then become a slave of Christ and he gave his life. Do you know what, do you know what St. Patrick did after he was converted? 
he went back to the Druids to tell them about Jesus, and he evangelized all of Ireland, which of course is honored with shamrocks and green. His shamrock seems to be a tool for teaching the Trinity. All of it is lost, right? It's just consumerism. Even the echoes of Christ have been turned into consumeristic secular holidays, not to mention Christmas. If our kids are going to know a legend of Saint Nick, why isn't it the legend of Saint Nick that seems to develop around 1000 AD, which said that Saint Nick was actually one of the guys at the Council of Nicaea, and that he was the one standing for the divinity of Jesus against Arius. And he got so frustrated with Arius and his heresy that Jesus was a mere human, that he rose up and he slapped him in the face. Why don't we know that story of Saint Nick instead of all the other ones? Because they're, they're cultural, they're not Christian at all. Even the echoes of Christ have, have been lost. Third observation is that they're about my life, not the life of Christ. They're about my activity, not God's. Many of us work to make God a priority in our rhythm, in our calendar. That's great. But here, here's what that can feel like, Glenn packing. He says this. He says, our, our church calendar centers on what we're doing and invites God in. Now, please do that. Invite God into what you're doing. But our calendars, in, they're about what we're doing and invites God in. And he says, but the, the historic church calendar centers on what Christ has done and invites us in to participate in his life, his suffering, his death, resurrection, and commission. One is about my activity. The other is about Christ. One is about the busyness of my predetermined rhythms. The other is about interrupting my rhythms to bring my life into the cadence of Christ and his work. So let me ask you again, where's, where's the king in our calendars? If our calendar is king and we want to be formed in the image of Jesus, I think we need to look at the water around us. Because our inherited cultural calendars are in many ways rival liturgies. They're not neutral. They're rival liturgies, to use the language once more of Jamie Smith. We think we're impervious, but we aren't. Our calendars form us just like worship does. So Paul says this. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Laura Winter says this at the beginning of living the Christian year. I want the Christian story to shape everything I do. Even how I reckon time, I want it to be truer and more essential to me than my school's calendar or Hallmark's calendar or the calendar set by the IRS. I want the rhythms of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost to be more basic to my life than the days on which my quarterly estimated taxes are due. So the main idea for today, and one of the dimensions of this value, is that we have inherited cultural calendars that have tremendous formative power, and we need to push back and resist. What I want to do now is to dive into a quick biblical theology of time and calendar, starting in Genesis 1 and 2 to trace that thread of this part of our rhythm, the rhythm of time. There's three points. The first is that time is 
Okay, there it all is. All right. Great. Time is God's. <laughs> time is God's. Here is really chapter one of the story of time. And it comes on, if you have the, the Coffee House Bible, it's on page one. Genesis chapter one. This is day four. Do you remember last week we looked at the, the days of creation? We said that the time centers and frames the days of creation. Days one and seven, the bookends, the frame, are all about time. And then day four, this very center of the creation week is all about time. This is day four. God says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Do you remember this word light? I talked about it last week. This everywhere else is the word for, in the, everywhere else in the Pentateuch is the word for the lampstand that's in the tabernacle. Israel's neighbors, they thought the lights in the skies, the stars, the planets, the heavens, they thought those were gods. In Israel's creation story says, no, those are just lamps. They're, they're just lamps created by God and they have a purpose to separate day from the night and to let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give life on the earth and it was so. Do you see the purpose of, of what happens on day four? God in creation itself is marking sacred time. Time is God's, God made time. He made it for his purposes. He made time to point to him. He made time to tell us when to worship him. And this isn't something that shows up in the law. This is something that shows up in the stars. This is there in creation. The rhythm of creation points us to him. Time is God's. Take a look at day seven, the finale, the climax of creation. By the seventh day, God finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on the seventh, because on it, the seventh day, he rested from all the work that, of creating that he had done. He made it holy. Time is set apart for God and for God's purposes. There's this weekly rhythm that's designed into creation itself where he wants us to think about him. He says, I want you to work. I want you to be productive. Some of us need to hear that. He says, I want you to rest. I want you to slow down. Some of us need to hear that. But all of us need to hear that there's this rhythm in the years and in the months and in the weeks that God wants time to be his. Time is God's. But we also see there this clue that time is holy. Time is holy. That language of sacred times and, and days and months and seasons and years, that language is this word that shows up in Leviticus 23. So this is really chapter two of the story of time. Chapter one says that God made time for him. Chapter two says that God made time for his people, Israel. This is Leviticus 23, the very beginning of this chapter. It's all about the festivals. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my, you see this word in the NIV, appointed festivals. Literally, it's the word straight out of Genesis 1, that, that day four sequence. These are my sacred times. These are my seasons. These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. He says, every week, I want you to get together to worship me. This is part of what I want my people to do. 
You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. We'll talk more about Sabbath next week, but do you see that there are sacred times that he gives to his people Israel as part of the law? Sabbath is the first one, but Sabbath is only the first of seven. Seventh is the first of seven. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, verse 4, and then he introduces spring and the fall festivals. The sacred assemblies are to proclaim at their appointed times, and here they are. The first is a weekly festival of Sabbath, a day of no, no work and a day of worship and rest. Next, we see the spring festivals, the ones of Passover, first fruits, and Pentecost. He says, these are annual times written into the stars where I want you to remember me. These are like big moments in life. These are harvest time. These are planting time. This is redemption from Egypt time. And he says, I want you to tell these stories to remember who you are and to remember whose you are. The, the fall festivals uh, down here, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of Booths. Festival of Booths is really cool. It's where everybody just goes camping together. Like all of Israel is invited to go camping, to remember what it was like to wander in, in Israel. When I was a kid, I used to think, the Festival of Booth sounds terrible. Everybody has to leave their house and go out and build these little tents. But then I realized, oh, they're just doing a big church camping trip. <laughs> it's like, that actually sounds pretty cool. My family loves to camp. Here, here are the festivals. And what they do is they move Israel through these rhythms of fasting and feasting, of, of worship and rest. And they help at key moments in the calendar to center everyone and to remind them of who they are. And so instead of celebrating Memorial Day or Veterans Day or Fourth of July or Juneteenth, they're saying, no, this is who we are. We aren't the people who became a people 150 years ago or 250 years ago. We are the people who became a people at Passover. When our ancestors in the faith were redeemed from the empire through the power of God, this calendar is actually given to his people as a way of ordering their lives. This is the liturgy of their lives and it came from God. Time is God's, it's written to the stars. Time is holy, it's written into the law. But chapter three of the story is the time is fulfilled. Time is fulfilled. This is how the story of time reaches its fulfillment in, in the person of Jesus. This is how Mark starts his gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. He says, after John finished his work, he says, Then Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, or the ESV, the time is fulfilled. He says, repent and believe in the good news. The time has come. Jesus understands himself to be the fulfillment of what God was always doing through the ordering of time. He's, he's its climax. He's its fulfillment. What's really neat, though, if you look especially in the Gospel of John, and we don't have time to do it today, but the Gospel of John, the feast days, the celebrations of festivals are so important to how Jesus is revealed. Because John goes out of his way to show us that everything in Israel's calendar is pointing to this person. It's not just a, a time, it's pointing to a person. The person is this king who's come onto the scene. There are these huge moments, most of all Passover, right? Where in Israel's most holy day, as they gather around their tables to remember their redemption by God, instead of that, 
Jesus says, I want you to take this meal, and he redefines it around himself. He says, do this in remembrance of me. This is no longer a memorial of Egypt. This is a memorial of my body and my blood. He says, time is fulfilled. I, this is how I want you to remember me. Time once looked back to Passover. He says, now I want to look forward from everything now seen through me. In the book of Galatians, it uses that same language of the fulfillment of time. When the, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoptions. He's the fulfillment of time. But look, it says just a few verses later. Let's get down to verse 10. He says, but some of you are missing how Christ has fulfilled time. And you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Do you hear that language of day four? Do you hear that language of Leviticus? He says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. He says, you think that you're going to be saved on the basis of your law keeping? He says, remember, time is fulfilled. In this chapter, Jesus has wrapped up all of Israel's laws about time. He says, you're observing special days, and so you may be thinking, wait, isn't this whole sermon about special days? Yes, in some ways, but not because they're law, but because they're wisdom. Not because we're under Moses, but because we're under Christ. If Christ has fulfilled all of the feasts, if Christ has come as the fulfillment of time, then how come we're not looking at How come the king's not in our calendars? That's really what I'm trying to say. Here's one more place in Romans chapter 14. Paul says, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He says, you can do this. So you don't have to. And that's really our invitation. By making this a core value, it's saying this is not essential. But this is something that's going to be important to us as a community. It's an invitation to participate. Our church is going to do some things that look like the Christian calendar. And we want to invite you into that. Not as a matter of law, not as a matter of rules, but as a matter of transformation. Because here's the deal. Even if you reject a Christian calendar, and you say, I am free from the Christian calendar, and some of you may want to do that, especially if you grew up in the legalistic environment around the calendar. But the reality is that even if you reject the Christian calendar, you still have an inherited cultural calendar. And you still live out sacred days and months and years that still invite you into a liturgy full of colors and music and stories. And so by rejecting a Christian calendar, you're in some sense forfeiting a transformative power to what could be shaping you into the image of Jesus. And instead, it's shaping you into someone who's a secular good citizen of the United States. I have more important things to do with my life than that. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of time. And so I want all of my time to be surrendered to him. So what would this look like? This is amazing. It actually still looks like a lot of Israel's calendar and the things that were there on day four. But they've been fulfilled by Jesus. So Sabbath, the New Testament says that Sabbath is over as a law, but look, Christ is still our rest. There remains a rest, Hebrews 3 and 4 says, strive to enter that rest. Look at Passover. 
First Corinthians, Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb. And so when, instead of celebrating Passover, we celebrate the table of the Lord where we remember his death and resurrection. At first fruits, Paul says, First Corinthians 15, he says, Christ is our first fruits from the dead. This feast of first fruits? No, this is a Christian celebration. Instead of Pentecost and celebrating a harvest festival, we're celebrating the initial harvest that began the church when 3,000 souls were added because Christ Jesus poured out his spirit on them. Instead of the Feast of Trumpets, where they would basically just blow a bunch of trumpets for a day, they're blowing at least 100 trumpets. That's like the whole thing. It's in order to call people into worship. Christ has already brought in the age to come, and he's going to come, and he's going to blast another trumpet at that last day. The Day of Atonement, Christ is our atoning sacrifice, to use the language of First John chapter 2. The Feast of Booths. The, one, the tabernacle to remember the wilderness? No, Christ came, and John 1.14 says he tabernacled with us. Christ has fulfilled all of it, which doesn't mean that now we can forget it all. Now it means we exalt Christ Jesus, who is over all of us. So at, at Oikos, what this will look like is a Christ-centered calendar. Not in a rigid way, but in really just by way of invitation, by way for the sake of wisdom and transformation. Oikos has a piece here, but I think there could also be a personal piece, and I want to invite you to think about this for you. Now, your groups this month have a reflect uh, practice to basically do an audit of your calendar, and the question under all of that is, where's the king in your calendar? If your calendar's king, where's the king in your calendar? And it's to say, am I making much of Jesus in my year, or am I just making much of the inherited thing? Look around at the water that you're swimming in and see if Christ is there. Now, there's other pieces of our rhythms that I think are worth evaluating. When our group did this exercise last Sunday, man, I discovered that I need more rhythms of friendship and I need more rhythms of exercise. You may think those have nothing to do with Christ. I, I beg to differ. And so it's not just get, which day should I be worshiping. It's like, what would my life look like if I surrendered it all to the king. So where's the king in your calendar? The Christian calendar is a way of putting the king in the calendar. The Christian calendar, you see, it actually begins in December um, with Advent. If you've been around Oikos for long, you know Advent was one of our first events that we ever had. Um, that, that Sunday night at Bell Tower Coffee, even before we launched, we were trying to, to point to this what would become now a core value that that a rhythm of life that's focused on Jesus is more important rather than getting lost in the hurry of school programs and like coke ad nostalgia we wanted to to be in a season of preparation for the coming of Jesus advent gives way to christmas christmas december 25th is a celebration of the incarnation of god you may be thinking well are we sure he was born on december 25th no that's not the point. The point is to celebrate that God has come in the flesh. Christmas gives way to Epiphany, which celebrates the revelation of God. And then Epiphany gives way to Lent, which is mindful of the crucifixion of Jesus for 40 days. And then we have the season of Easter that celebrates the resurrection. And then resurrection gives way to ascension as we celebrate Pentecost. Every year we have some event around Pentecost where we seek the Spirit in new ways. Every year we have some event at Easter, where we really reflect on Holy Week. This is, this is what our calendar looks like as a church. 
And before this was a value, this was already our calendar. But I think this could be a calendar for your family. As Laura Winter says, I want the church's calendar to be more important to me than Hallmark's calendar. I want it to be more important to me than the IRS quarterly tax season schedule. How do we do it? We put it in the calendar. The calendar's came. So a, a Christian calendar, it's not, not a legalistic obligation, but it's an opportunity to reflect on Christ throughout the year. This is, I think, a, a beautiful thing that can happen, but year is one dimension. Week is another. I think part of what we mean by Christ-centered calendars, that it's a worshiping calendar. In other words, it's not intended for the formation of American citizens. If you want that in your church, go somewhere else. That's not what we're doing here. We are trying to form people into the image of Jesus Christ. And so that means our calendars aim at worship. The worship of God who made time to point to him in worship. That's why we have time to worship him. So. The, the key in Genesis chapter 2 is a weekly rhythm of worship because God said this is holy and it's for me. I think having a weekly, a weekly rhythm of worship is essential. And I'm talking to people who are here weekly. <laughs> so I, I know who I'm talking to, but some of you may be thinking, I'm just trying to get back into church. I am so glad that you are. And it's not just that you have to do this. It's like... This is what you were made for. This is what the sun, moon, and stars, this is what is designed into you and into creation. You were made to be with God's people in a weekly rhythm of worship. It may sometimes feel like obligation. I get that. But it's still an obligation to the Lord because this is his story. And being at worship is a reminder that it's, my story is important, but my story finds its true meaning as part of his big story, a worshiping calendar. And so we don't do a lot of things that are, I, I told you about the end of summer celebration. We don't do a lot of that here, you may have noticed. Instead, we do things like All Saints, where instead of having a big Trump or Treat Halloween celebration, we have a night of worship. And there's another dimension. It's not just a worshiping calendar. It's a wholehearted calendar. All Saints is a great example. Uh, you, you, don't, you never even heard of All Saints, most of us. <laughs> uh, you, have you ever heard of Halloween? Okay, yes, I've got you. Halloween is the same day every week. Do you know what it is? It's All Hallows' Eve. It, it is a celebration of the night before All Saints Day. That's all it is. Now, somehow, we've exchanged a calendar that could be worshiping and Christ-centered for one that's just filled with scary costumes and candy. But All Saints Day allowed our community to get together and to remember those who have died in the Lord. We wept. I mean, we, we cried. We, we smiled. We heard from people in our community who have lost loved ones. And we heard of the hope of resurrection. This is what a Christian calendar can do. It can give you moments of lament and joy. There, there are seasons where we need to fast and feast. There, there are seasons that are full of celebration, but we also need seasons that are full of reflection. And this is all a gift, a part of what it would look like to have a Christ-centered calendar, where your heart is brought to its depths and its heights. 
with lament and joy. That's what we're aiming at here, and that's part of what we mean by rhythm of life. So, what could happen if we did this as a church? I, I'm just so struck by, by kind of the Jewish people. Jewish people are this countercultural community that just have their own calendar. They do things differently. They've got Rosh Hashanah. They've got the Yom Kippur. They've got Day of Atonement. They've got Passover. They, they have their rhythms and their stories and their colors and their nostalgia. And they have a counter community that, that shows this is who I am. And in some ways, that's what I would long for. Not in a rigid way, not in a legalistic way, but in a way that says that we are the people of Christ. We're the ones who've been redeemed. And so I can't wait for his coming. And so in December, rather than just thinking of, of the Christmas season, we're, we're thinking of Advent and the coming of the Lord. He's coming back. And at Christmas, rather than just focusing on Santa Claus, we're actually trying to focus on the incarnation of Jesus. And at Easter season, rather than just doing Easter eggs, we're actually trying to get people to appreciate the resurrection of Jesus. I think we can become a countercultural community, but I think this isn't just something for our church. This is something for our for our people, our partners, and our families. If the king was part of your calendar, don't you think that your days and your, your weeks, that your months and even your years would have deeper and richer meaning? Because you're not just part of an American story that who knows, in a, in a few years, in a few hundred years, we don't know, will just be gone and forever forgotten. But we will be part of an eternal story a story that goes back to the creation and points forward to new creation. It points to a rest in the back in, in day seven, but it points forward to a rest that we will enjoy forever. You see how centering this can be, how rooted this can be. You see, I, I want roots. I, I want this wholehearted experience where I get to actually be fully human with a people and a history under God who saved me in Jesus Christ. And I think the calendar can help us because the calendar in many ways is king. So I invite you to explore that in your groups and on your own. What would it look like to embrace a Christ-centered calendar? All right, that may be the first sermon you have ever heard on a calendar. You're like, I had no idea you could talk so long about a calendar. But is there a piece there that's worth holding on to? Maybe write it down, maybe send it to someone you love, and then have a conversation about it. Let me let me bless you. Would you stand? And I'll send you out. Holy God, time is yours. We surrender it to you. We have acted for so long like it's ours. And sometimes we invite you in, but Lord, would you invite us into what you have already done? what you have done in creation and what you've done at the cross. And Lord, if there's something here that's not worth remembering, that I was just off on, would you just throw that away to the wind? But Lord, if there's something here that's worth holding on to, would you plant that in, in a heart right now? Would you grow our desire to elevate the name of Jesus in our calendars? And would you form us into his image through that? In Christ's name, amen.